Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. not know this, but our coffee overlords gave us permission to begin celebrating fall this week. Right? Here's what I mean. Thursday, Starbucks officially released, kicked off, whatever you want to call it, the pumpkin spice season. All right. Thank you. I'm just glad to know I'm not the only basic one in here. Okay. I love the pumpkin spice season. I love fall. Um, I actually was trying to figure out how much it would cost to get some of this pumpkin into my bloodstream. So I had to re-download the app. It had been so long since I've been to Starbucks, okay? But I re-downloaded the app, and to, to the praise of Jesus, I had a gift card that I had forgotten about with $10 on my Starbucks card. <laughs> and so you can believe that day, I went home, I got a couple of tall pumpkin cream cold brews for me and my bride to enjoy, and it was fantastic, right? I love the fall. We've talked about this before, right? College football officially has started, all right? The NFL is not far behind. We are entering the home stretch and then playoff baseball for us Braves fans, okay? The cooler weather, that was my next thing, right? The less humidity and cooler weather, I'm so excited, But here's the deal. I was sitting there and I was drinking my pumpkin coffee and I was inside my air-conditioned home and I was sweating. (laughs) I mean, it's a hundred degrees outside and it's so humid. (laughs) And as much as I'm ready for fall and I want it to be fall, I was sitting there and I was drinking my pumpkin. I was like, this is not right. I cannot be sweating and consuming pumpkin. So I decided I'm going to hold off on my next pumpkin drink until, you know, later in September, the first cold, let me say cooler day we have, you know, looking forward to those days. If you're like me, it's moments like that where my mind begins to kind of chase rabbits, right? And I started thinking about the seasons and how, you know, we're not quite to fall yet, but these seasons are proof that the earth is round. Now, 
I know there is this resurgent of people who want to disagree with me right now, all right, that for some reason have gone back to the earth being flat. But the fact that we have fall coming up is, is evidence that the earth is round and it's on its axis and it's spinning and it's rotating around the sun. And the, as the, it gets to certain points in its rotation and it's going around the sun, the weather cools off or warms up and our seasons are evidence of this knowledge. But the truth is, we as humans have not always, always known this to be true, right? And the first time I heard, uh, we're talking about Matthew 28 today, right? The Great Commission to go and baptize. But rarely do we talk about what comes before that. And the first time I actually heard this as an illustration to unpack Matthew 28 was from Steve Deneff. So I want to give him credit. But he tells the story of Nicholas Copernicus. All right, you guys know who this is? You might have slept in that class. That's okay. I'm going to tell you right now, all right? He was funded by the church as a young 24-year-old in 1497. He was not an astronomer, an astronomer, right? But he was a mathematician and an artist. And so he was funded to kind of come up with these sketches or this hypothesis on this theory that it wasn't actually the earth in the center of the universe, but the sun. So he had this, this evidence based on things like the season, things like the length of the day, the things like the weathers and other factors. And he proposed that the sun was actually the center of the universe and the earth was not flat, but round and spinning on its axis. Now, Copernicus was convinced of his theories he had all the math and the evidence to prove it, but he lived at a time when no one else believed this to be true. So rightfully so, he was very nervous and anxious about his findings. And even though he had proof, he knew that people would not accept it. So he came up with this brilliant sketches and he called it the hypothesis of the heavenly motions like brilliant you can tell he's an artist right that's beautifully titled <laughs> and he had all of this artwork and these sketches to prove his theory but he refused to publish it because there was a more popular story and his would not be accepted in fact we would not know of these sketches at all if it weren't for a friend of his that found them and published them a year after Copernicus had already died. Here's the point. Copernicus died believing he was right, but being convinced by the culture around him that he was wrong. Can you imagine being so sure of something, but surrounded by a society that refused to believe it? So sure, you can feel it in your bones. But every time you think about mentioning it, you can just see the resistance that would come up from the people around you. Each and every time, fall would roll around and Copernicus would get his pumpkin spice latte. Okay, that, that didn't happen. But every time those seasons would change, he would be reminded and he would know that he had this theory and the evidence and he was so sure that it would be, that it was accurate, but he wouldn't share it because of the resistance around him. The other view was way more popular, but it was wrong. His view was correct, but it was in the minority. And he was a rookie in his field. Who would have ever believed him? 
Now, this is an exact match for Matthew 28, but it can be mapped onto it pretty closely. I feel like if we think about the resurrection and we think about Copernicus's predicament, that we can see that his theory was a groundbreaking idea, but the resurrection was a revolution. It wasn't just groundbreaking, but it was world-changing. The resurrection radically affects everything we know about the world. The problem is it's a minority view. If we go back to that day, if we go back and we read the story of the resurrection morning in Matthew 28, we'll see that it was believed by very few, all of whom were amateurs. In fact, it was first believed and preached by women who were second class and weren't considered credible witnesses anyway. The majority view was accepted, it was protected, and it was paid for by the elites. And it had the disciples of Christ, both men and women, scared and locked in a room, praying and waiting for God's spirit to come upon them. See, there was these two views. One was popular and the other was right. We talk about Matthew 28 verses 19 through 20 pretty often. This is the Great Commission. This is the mission that Jesus gives his church as he sends it out. As we go and you read the book of Acts, you see the life-changing power of the gospel. And that gospel is to be spread by the followers of Jesus. And that is given as a command to them at the end of Matthew 28. It says, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always and to the end of the day, age. The church talks about that part of Matthew a lot, but rarely do they go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 28, where we see this situation play out. You have two stories happening at the same time. You have the women who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. You can go and you can read the story for yourself. They witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. There's angels and there's the tomb being rolled away. They're telling them that they need to go tell the disciples, these guards that are there, they see this take place and they kind of remind me as I read the story of the fainting goats, right? They're shocked and they kind of freeze and fall over, right? They, they, they have this crazy experience. Don't shake your head at me, okay? If you've seen the videos, you know it's funny, okay? That's the picture that I see there. And then they get this as the, the, the angels telling them that Jesus is not here, that he is resurrected, he is raised from the dead. Then they encounter Jesus. They witness the resurrected Jesus. And they have this moment where this Messiah that they've been following, this one that was gonna save them from the the Roman government, that was gonna overthrow everything, the one that was their Messiah, their savior, who they thought was dead and were grieving, they encounter him and he is no longer dead. And you get all of those emotions bottled up. They fall at his feet, they worship him. And he tells them to go back and tell the other disciples that Jesus is no longer dead, that he is raised from the grave and that they they need to meet him and see him and receive this great commission. At the exact same time as the women are running to the other disciples, you see these fainting goats, these guards, and they are running to the priest. They run to the priest and tell them all that has happened. Imagine you're the priest, (laughs) okay? So you saw an angel and women and resurrected Jesus. 
you can imagine they're like, this is not, this is not going to work. So the priests, they come up with this story. They hear what the guards have to say, and they come up with this story that says, you know what? You didn't see that thing. What you saw were the followers of this Jesus guy steal the body and run away with it. And the priests say, we will, we'll, fund, we'll fund this story. We'll give you the money you need. We'll protect you. We'll guard this story. If the governor hears about it, we'll be on your side, and you don't have to worry about any consequences. That will satisfy any questions he may have. And then Matthew adds at the very end in verse 18, it says, and this story is told even to this day. So let me get a little Bible nerd on you, all right? We know because of all the historical evidence and things that the book of Matthew was written about 60 to 65 years after the resurrection. So when he writes, even to this day, we realize that this story of the body being stolen has been spread with mass circulation for 65 years. This story has been told, it has been protected, and it has been funded. It has gained momentum it's spreading. People are beginning to believe it. It's gathering buy-in. It's reaching out. And the, the amount of people that are believing this story gives it credibility. And this is a big deal. And it's easy for us, as we read that, to kind of look and villainize the priest. But I don't think the priests were lying. I think they were wrong, but I don't think they were lying. Think about it from their perspective. You have some guards who had one job, and they failed it. Their one job was to protect the body, make sure nothing happened. Now they show up with this outlandish story of angels and a tomb and a giant stone being rolled away, women being there looking for Jesus, encountering Jesus, and then running away. Like the priests are like, these guards, they fainted and they came to, and now they're trying to protect themselves. So they're able to, to look at this and they say, you know what, we could just call these guards liars. But if this word gets out and these ragtag group of people that are following Jesus find out that the body's not in the tomb, even if it was stolen or whatever, that gives them all the momentum they need. The reason they crucified Jesus is because they didn't like the power he was gaining. And if they find out that the body's not there, all of his followers get to keep and move on with that same power. So they can't just let these guards tell this story. So they come up with another plan. They come up with a plan that is more logical, giving their worldview and the evidence that they have. They think the, that the guards are lying, and so they come up with this story. They knew that the resurrected Jesus could not get out. So when we go to the text, my point here is this. It's not that the priests are lying, because I don't think they were. My point is that almost from the beginning, there are two stories, that the body was stolen or the other, that the body was raised. These stories live side by side for the first 60 years of Christianity. They are competing. People don't know which one to believe. One is more it's well-funded. It comes with a social acceptance and political power. The other is believed by this strange minority group of people. One is popular. The other is right. Two stories at the same time. One popular, one right. If the body was stolen, it means that the heavens are shut. 
Jesus is not raised from the dead, and he is not who he said it was. If the body is stolen, it means that the powers of darkness that ruled the world still rule the world. It means that you have no hope of overcoming. You have no hope of overcoming the addiction that seems to have its grips on you. You have no hope of overcoming the anger issues, of overcoming the eating disorder, learning to forgive your parents, finding freedom from the bitterness or the lust that has captured you. You have no hope of of learning to be generous with your money rather than letting uh, letting it rule over you. If the body was stolen, God has done nothing to save his fallen people. If, on the other hand, the body is raised, it means that the heavens are opened. The dead are raised. Jesus is who he says he is. And if the body has been raised, there is nothing, nothing in this world is as we think it is. It's a whole, there's a whole new set of rules that apply. The power of our creator God is greater than the powers of this world. It means that you may feel powerless over whatever it is that has its grips on you, but that's only because you are playing by the wrong rules. Paul echoes this in 2 Corinthians when he says, so that from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. The old is gone, and the new is here. The grave cannot hold Jesus, and your addiction cannot hold you. Your idol is powerless. Whatever sin has controlled your life up to this point has had its license revoked. When you place your faith in Jesus, just like him, you move from death to life. And all of heaven rejoices. We see this from the book of Acts onward. The church has marked this moment with baptism. Baptism does not save you. Only Jesus can do that. But like a wedding ring is for a marriage, baptism is for the church. It's a chance for you to declare to the world that I am a follower of Christ. There's been an inward working of grace in your life that has moved you from death to life, and now you outwardly proclaim that truth. It is a testimony, and it is a sacrament. It is something that we practice with great honor and privilege as we say that this person who is being baptized has been raised from death to life. And they are declaring that now I walk in that life. Now I am a child of the true God. And today we get to witness this. Amy and Aurora are going to be baptized. They both have stories of life change in in Christ. Every believer in this room has a story of of moving from from death to life. Stories of marriages that could have or should have failed. Stories of addiction, relapse, but ultimately freedom. Stories of violent tempers held under control. Stories of being trapped in lifeless religion only to be set free in the spirit of God. There are times where people in this room who follow Jesus have moved from death to life. Even though the world around Copernicus taught him that the earth was the center of the universe. He knew the evidence said differently. Even though the world around you says that the body had to have been stolen, 
you can let the evidence of lives changed tell you the truth. Jesus is raised. And when you surrender your life to him and declare him as Lord, you too will be raised from death to life. Today we get to witness that. I'm going to play the video that we started the message with again as we get this stuff ready. And Amy and Aurora, you can step over there. We're going to do their baptism. And then I'll step back up and we'll end the service together. I was knee deep in my failures. But now the waters of change wash over my head. I do this because I know who I am. I do this because I'm forgiven. I do this because he rose. I know no water can change me, but this water is a sign that change has occurred in my heart. My life will never be the same. So now I'm proclaiming it to the world. And just as Jesus was buried, I will be buried. Just as Jesus rose, I will rise. Faith, hope, love, none are greater than these. I have faith that Jesus is who he says he is. I have hope in his resurrection and his everlasting power. His endless love has forever changed my life. were happening at once. One was popular and the other was right, but only one has the power to raise the dead. The question is, which one will you base your life on? Either the body was stolen or the body was raised.